Hi, Jim. Uh, we're back. It's the start of season three of the Equip Project podcast. How are you feeling about being into our third season? Well, anything that alleviates the boredom of lockdown is welcome, Ollie. Um, I mean, uh, to be serious, I'm, I'm really looking forward uh, to getting stuck into some of these interesting cultural trends that you have identified for this series. I mean, it should be fun, you know. No, not as much fun as the Zoom meeting of the Handforth Parish Council, <laughs> but hopefully a little less chaotic. That was honestly one of my favorite videos of all time, probably. Absolutely quality. Um, and actually, my, my younger brother, Ben, sent a message to Jackie Weaver. She's on Instagram now. She's an Instagram celebrity. And he sent a message to her in full cap lock saying, you have no authority here, Jackie Weaver. No authority at all. <laughs> <laughs> read the standing orders, read them and understand them. Uh, it was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I, re- I remember sitting through lectures on governance years and years ago, you know, when people were trying to explain the difference between authority and control. Uh, but, but Jackie Weaver's mouse click that ejected the chairman from the Zoom call explains, you know, the difference between authority and control. I mean, it was absolutely hilarious. I, did, I think as a Zoom master at, at church yourself, Jim, you must have particularly appreciated the, the power of that role. Yes, it, it, I'm drunk with power. <laughs> Brilliant. No, it was it was it was certainly a, it was certainly a highlight of my lockdown experience uh, to date. But I'll I'll do my best not to uh, eject you from from this Zoom call, Jim, um, unless you say something that I profoundly disagree with, and I'll maybe I'll, I'll maybe be tempted. But in in season two, we looked into the future. So our, our, our kind of gaze was directed towards, you know, what might happen in the evangelical world in the years to come and the kind of trends we expect to see. And we thought about stuff like climate change and technology. Uh, the future of evangelicalism was one of our episodes. And the move away from organized religion to a more privatized form of spirituality. But in season three, we're almost changing that and looking the opposite direction back into the past, in effect. Um, And we want to think clearly about the movements of thought that have got us to the point we're at today. And it's sometimes really helpful to do that, I think, to look over our shoulder and ask, well, how did we actually get here? How did we arrive at this particular cultural moment? So in this season, we're going to be thinking about some of the ideas and philosophies that have impacted all the building blocks that make up society. So that's things like social justice, language, education, the media, the family. But in this first episode, we're going to think about the rise of the self. So let me start by asking you, Jim, why is the way we think of ourselves so foundational to understanding what's going on in culture at the moment? Well, I think it basically explains everything that's going on in culture right now. I mean, as you say in our next episode, I think it's our next one, we'll talk about social justice and critical theory. Uh, And then in later episodes, we'll talk about education and even how language has changed. Uh, But you can't begin to understand those things until you've grasped just how radically our self-understanding has been transformed over the past two centuries. Exactly. And the term that's used to describe the modern view of the self is a thing called expressive individualism. That term is all about living an authentic life that doesn't conform to the restrictions imposed by society. But before we delve into the meaning of expressive individualism, we need to first think about how we view the world. So, Jim, the question is, how has the way we view the world around us changed since the 18th century? Okay. So there are... There are basically two ways of viewing the world. Okay, when we look out upon the world around us, we can we can either see it as an ordered thing that has been given meaning, 
uh, or else we can see it as a non-rational collection of raw material that, that we can use to fabricate meaning for ourselves. So let's call the first view of the world the ordered world, and we'll call the second way of looking at the world the raw material world view. So, so for most of human history, uh, people viewed the world as ordered. It was a reservoir of meaning, and uh, so my job was to discover and learn from it. Uh, the Greeks, for example, were really keen in training young people to learn wisdom, to uh, acquire the art of living, and, and then to make a useful contribution to the maintenance of a well-ordered world. So they were very political in the, in the good sense of that term. Okay, They, they felt the responsibility to maintain order uh, in the face of chaos. I guess the view of the world, um, which says it has a given order and an objective meaning, becomes clear when we look at the world religiously. Like religious people would tend to see the world um, as the creation of a moral being. And that moral being has given meaning to the world. So we start to see our lives in the world as as kind of pilgrims who follow a path that's been laid out to us uh, by religious teaching. That's right. Um, that's the, the, the most obvious example of an ordered world. But, but even secular or pantheistic societies uh, view the world as having order and meaning. Sometimes not a good sort of order, um, because often the order imposed by those ideologies was was brutal. I mean, think of feudalism in medieval England or the caste system in India. People were told to accept their position in some imposed hierarchy because that's just the way the world is. You can't fight against an imposed order. And there's another view of the world that's come to dominate thinking in our culture, isn't there? It's now popular to see the world as a collection of raw materials that we use to fashion our own meaning. And the order of society is now seen as a negative and oppressive thing. Yeah, a few minutes ago, you described expressive individualism as, uh, what was the term you used? An authentic life that doesn't conform to the restrictions imposed by society. And you can begin to see now why expressive individualism is premised on the idea that the world out there has no given meaning or order that must be obeyed. Instead, we must make the inward turn to construct our own meaning in life. That's a really interesting expression or phrase you use there, Jim, the inward turn. What do you mean by that? Okay, well, for now, I'm going to answer that question psychologically. Okay, now in a few moments, we'll have to think about it at a deeper level, uh, theologically. But for now, at the level of the personality, the inward turn means, mean, well, it means this. Who I am is determined above all by my inner psychological life. It's not determined by anything outside of myself, not by family or church or broader society or the workplace. Who I am is determined by my inner psychological life. I find out who I am by looking inward through introspection. I examine and delve down into my deepest intuitions and sensibilities. And from those reservoirs of truth, I work out who I am. In Christian thought, there is this idea of an inner voice, which we call the conscience. But that's different to what you're talking about, isn't it? Completely different. In some ways, it's the polar opposite, actually, of, of uh, the Christian idea of a conscience. Um, because, you see, a conscience is a bit like a compass in, inside our heads. It points us due north, if you like. <laughs> in other words, there's a, a, a subjective link to an objective reality. But in a world that is just raw material, there is no such thing as north. The outside world is, is not a reservoir of wisdom or objective values or meaning. I have to manufacture those things for myself using only my inner resources uh, of my own psychological life. So everything rests on my personal convictions. Even my morals rest upon the convictions of my own heart. 
Uh, and this idea of expressive individualism actually lies at the heart of sexualized identities that we encounter in the LGBT movement. There's something about those identities that I think confuse Christians a bit, because on the one hand, a sexualized identity is entirely self-created. It's the product of someone acting as an autonomous being and doesn't require any outside input. But on the other hand, people who build sexualized identities often insist that everyone else in society affirm them. So how do you fit those two things together? Expressive individualism forging an identity that requires no input from society, but then simultaneously also this demand that society affirms that identity when it's been made. Yeah, it does seem a bit contradictory, doesn't it? So to understand what's going on here, we need to think for a moment about how identities are formed. Um, I'm just thinking back. We, we did a couple of episodes in our marathon-long season one on the topic of identity. Uh, and we made the basic point that before we can answer the question, who am I, we need to answer the question, what am I? Now, because our culture views the world as a collection of raw material, you know, no, no objective values, no meaning to be encountered, um, the, the old Christian idea that human beings are creatures made in the image of God has been discarded. Uh, the ideas that, that we have intrinsic moral worth uh, endowed by the creator, uh, those ideas have all been binned. So we live in a society that has no idea what a human being is. Now, that was a, an important thing to say, but I have to say, Ollie, one of my regrets about those two episodes is that we didn't really give enough attention to the much more practical question, uh, which is how is an identity formed? Because at the practical, you know, the daily business of living level, how does our self-understanding develop? Well, for most of us, that process took place in our family life, in the earliest years of childhood. Uh, I mean, you're the eldest of your family, uh, Ollie. I am the youngest in my family. And that difference explains quite a lot of things about each of us. Yeah, I'm, inter I'm interested for your take on this, Jim. But, but I was thinking about my own family uh, in relation to this idea. And as the oldest child, I guess the kind of stereotype is that you're generally characterized as being more responsible. You take on this role of kind of teaching your younger siblings, maybe even being a bit bossy at times. And then the middle child kind of has to almost, they, they potentially get lost a bit. They almost have to compete with their older sibling and younger sibling vying for the attention of their parents. Then there's the youngest child, Jim, and, and that's you. <laughs> and often, from my experience, at least, the youngest child seems to get like more indulged. I always felt life for my younger brothers was easier because, you know, maybe the parents have sort of given up on disciplining them to the same extent <laughs> or because you as the older child have been like the guinea pig for basically every kind of new parenting technique or whatever. They've tried it out on you first. And if it went wrong, then they binned it for the younger kids. Was that your experience? <laughs> I was, that's strangely I was talking to my sister about this this morning and uh, I think by the time I came along because I'm the youngest of five I think they'd given up <laughs> on, on any, any parental technique uh, um, so uh, yeah but it does make a difference doesn't it but the important point is that you know we've both developed a self-understanding in, in a safe space to use that ghastly term because home was a place where we felt affirmed and valued and seen uh, it was where we could be our authentic selves um, now, our respective parents didn't just applaud us and, and tell us that everything we did was wonderful. Um, they injected wisdom into our lives. But it was always done, if you like, within the, the context of a, a loving gaze. 
Yeah, and I think I think probably at this point it's helpful to acknowledge that there are many people who maybe don't view their family as that safe space. Um, some people have incredibly traumatic home lives. It's important, I guess, that we acknowledge that too, Jim. It, it certainly is. Um, but in fact, your your point actually confirms my point uh, because people, in my experience, who have suffered life within a dysfunctional family know better than anyone that they lack something of real importance. Or worse, they actively suffered within an environment where parents or wider family behaved wickedly. So anyway, the general point I'm making here is that a healthy identity is formed in dialogue with other persons. In actual fact, the notion of a self-created identity is a bit of a nonsense idea because we all need to know ourselves in dialogue with other persons. We need to be seen in order to have an identity. But doesn't that point make things even more difficult for the expressive individualists. So people who try and create their own identity tend to have a negative view of society. And you talked earlier about society being seen as this kind of oppressive force. Um, So feminists use this term, the male gaze, to describe how uh, the heteropatriarchy sort of reduce women to a sexualized object. And then critical race theory, there's a, a term... Uh, or a concept called the colonial gaze. And that's this idea of white imperialists looking down on black people, for example. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that the ideologies of the progressive left make life very difficult for anyone trying to achieve a healthy identity. Um, I mean, let's just think for a moment about queer theory. I mean, that is dedicated to the destruction of the nuclear family, the the place designed by God to support the growth of a healthy self-understanding. So you get to this rather weird um, point where, um, according to the left, identity development occurs using a two-stage process. First, I construct my own identity using my inner convictions and intuitions. And then, secondly, I insist that all of society affirm my self-created identity. I crave the approving and affirming gaze of society in order to keep my self-understanding inflated. And so I think we're approaching something pretty deep here, Jim, and, and maybe it's, it's time to stop uh, thinking about this issue purely in psychological terms and start to bring in some theology. How does the Bible help us then understand what's going on when it comes to this modern view of the self? Well, to, to help explain that insight from the Bible, uh, let me read some verses uh, from Genesis chapter 3. Um, so the context here is that Satan has just tempted Eve to disobey God by eating fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, Genesis says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some of her to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Yeah, I think that that question, God asks Adam, is such a a haunting, somber one. Um, Adam, where are you? Uh, after the kind of the joy of the relationship that they had, and now this real kind of sense of a gap, uh, it's really, really sad. And in many ways, it explains everything that has gone wrong with humanity. We have run away from God, and we've hidden ourselves from His gaze. Yeah, and the idea of a gaze is really important here. I mean, these these early chapters of Genesis are so 
profound. You know, they're so densely packed with meaning. Um, the first thing that happens after Adam and Eve sin is that the eyes of both of them are opened and they know that they are naked. And so in psychological terms, they become self-conscious uh, in the negative sense of that term. Now, I don't mean self-consciousness at the superficial level of just being embarrassed. I mean self-conscious in the sense of self-regarding. So let's try and connect this ancient text with the conversation that we've just been having about identity formation. Because what we've been saying so far is that identity can only be formed when we're seen. You know, it requires us to be seen and affirmed by other persons. Identity can only really form under the approving gaze of another person. But what happens when we try to create our own identity? Well, Genesis 3 tells us we replace the gaze of the other with the gaze of the self. We start to regard ourselves we begin to look lovingly upon our own selves. Now, we need to think really deeply about this because what we're seeing here is a rupture of the personality, a rupture of personhood. A sort of separation occurs between identity and the self. So the thing we call identity now becomes more like an image, something that we can regard. Um, the old myth of Narcissus, as I think is really helpful here, I mean, he's a figure in Greek mythology who fell in love with his own reflection when he saw it in the water of a pool. And the crucial point is that Narcissus fell in love with his image. Okay? So theologically, that is the way to understand expressive individualism. We live in a society where people are in love with their own image rather than having a healthy self-love. A deep rupture has taken place within the psyche Instead of a unified person looking out at the world, we now have a divided person gazing inwardly at themselves. Now, I'm going to put that in really bald, blunt terms to make the point. I think modern, the modern view of identity is an idol. It's an idol that we form in our hearts. It, it becomes the regulating principle that governs all our lives. So technically, we can say that today we worship our identities. We think they have ultimate value in life. And that's why people become so full of despair and rage when their identities are threatened or not affirmed. It turns out that the gaze of the self is destructive. That's a that's a powerful phrase, I think. The gaze of the self is destructive. And it, it's similar, actually, to a statement that Tim Keller um, has made about a healthy sense of identity. He talks about the freedom of self-forgetfulness. He's actually written a little book uh, with that title. Someone with a healthy sense of identity isn't self-regarding. They're actually unself-conscious. Um, and it's the modern self-created identity which seems to be so painfully fragile and in constant need of affirmation. Why, why is that? Well, I think the text of the Genesis story can help us here because it shows what's going on behind the image, if you like. You may have noticed, Ollie, that there were two things going on in that passage um, because we encounter both guilt and shame. When Adam and Eve hide from God in the trees, we're seeing guilt. Guilt drives us away from God. But when we watch them sowing fig leaves together, we're seeing Adam and Eve struggle to deal with the shame of sin. And guilt and shame aren't the same things. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. Shame is a less rational thing than guilt. It haunts us. It tells us that we are our sin. And that's why an inner shame is so corrosive to our self-understanding. So what happens is that the gaze of the self always becomes accusing. We feel bad about ourselves. We become our own prosecutor and judge. We can even get to the point where we hate ourselves, where we loathe ourselves. But of course, we can't let anybody know. So we start to unload more and more of the freight of our lives into our image, 
into our identity, it becomes more and more valuable to us because we're ashamed of the real self. And the identity that we have forged now becomes a mask that we present to the world. We use it to mask our inner shame. And that is why the gaze of the self is so destructive. Can you think of an example um, in life to, to kind of ground this? Where, where can this process be seen? Yeah, well, I thought you would ask me this. and I mean, it's not a particularly savoury example, but let's take it. Um, think for a moment about the psychology that lies behind pornography. Now, at a superficial level, we're told that porn illustrates the, the male gaze, the objectification of a woman that reduces her to a sexual object. Now, that analysis is horrifyingly true, but it isn't actually the deepest problem. The real problem comes from the destructive gaze of the self. A man who watches porn isn't simply desiring an object. He is fantasizing about being the object of desire. He's trying to breathe life into an image of himself as a powerful, attractive man who can bring pleasure to a woman. When he directs his gaze at his own image, he can feel a momentary pleasure, a momentary pride. But at the same time, he knows that the fantasy is a lie. And so the destructive gaze of self looks at the real man behind the mask and brings nothing but shame. Yeah, that's a, that's a, really, a really poignant and, and powerful example, Jim. What then is the Bible's answer to these idolatries that lie behind expressive individualism? Well, we obviously need to stop trying to build our identity using the destructive gaze of the self. And instead, we should start to see ourselves in the light of God's benign and loving gaze. Uh, I mean, this is the argument that the Lord Jesus makes repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, it is true that we all need to be seen. Identity formation occurs in dialogue with other persons. But who is doing the seeing, asks Jesus. He tells what I think is a hilarious story about a man who comes into the temple to give money, and he hires two trumpeters to herald his entrance. I mean, it's the oldest example of virtue signaling that I can think of. I mean, it's, uh, it's Instagram, isn't it? Uh, and the man wanted to be seen, to be affirmed and appreciated. But, says Jesus, your father in heaven sees what you do in secret. And I think, just as a word of comfort and consolation to anyone listening, that is the key to identity formation. Once you become conscious that you are seen by your heavenly Father, that he affirms you and appreciates you, then you are on the path to a healthy self-understanding. You start to live your life like a, a small boy who loves playing football when his dad is watching. It just makes him feel appreciated and valued. And of course, being seen by God is about so much more than being affirmed. The Lord Jesus tells another story about a lost coin that was found. Um, and just think about that. You know, when the coin rolled under a chair and fell into some dark crack in the floor, it was just a meaningless bit of physical stuff. It had no purpose. But when the coin was seen, um, the housewife in the story could take the coin and invest its value in real wonderful things. I mean, she could buy food for a family meal. She could buy a little gift for a morning friend. Or she'd go to the market and buy warm clothing to keep her children snug on a cold day. So something inert, just a bit of physical stuff, could be transmuted in so many imaginative ways that were significant and purposeful. And that is obviously a picture of how God can take little creatures of dust and transmute their lives into something of real, lasting value. So that is the key um, to how a healthy self-understanding forms. To be seen by your Father in heaven, to be appreciated, and then to be used by him 
uh, in his purposes. It is that which leads to a healthy self-understanding. Thanks, Jim. I think that's just such an attractive, uh, that's such an attractive story. Um, it's so much better than the story told by our culture. Um, and in effect, what you're saying is that the, the Bible's answer to this idea of expressive individualism is to replace the destructive gaze of the self with the loving gaze of our Heavenly Father. Um, and when we do that, when we're seen by Him um, and appreciated by Him, then we can form this healthy self-understanding. And He begins a dialogue with us, which brings wisdom and love into our lives so that gradually we can see who we really are. And that's just uh, such a, a great antidote to so many of the things we hear in our culture today. Um, Jim, it's been really great chatting to you again. It's felt like a, a good while. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to all the conversations we have coming up in season three and I'm really excited about them. So are you going to bring this Zoom call to an end? <laughs> like Jackie Weaver, I'm going to kick you out right now. You have no, you, you have no authority, Ollie needed. No authority at all. I would actually love, I would love to have Jackie Weaver on the podcast at some point. A dream guest. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks so much, Jim. And we'll speak again next week.